a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the Force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 98 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your ticket to the EU. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, Zoom, or Stitcher, or right on our own Facebook page, at SW Beyond Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse we all deserve, Mark Herleman. And with me, like the inner balance of a Jedi, or Jedi, I don't know exactly how we're going to say it, but the EU guru himself, the Count of Continuity, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. Hey, everybody, and yeah, you're going to have to get used to the, the multiple pronunciations of Jedi, 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 and all that kind of stuff, because I got a feeling we're going to be bouncing back and forth between those without any real consistency. Well, you know, and I, I get how... You know, Tim had said, "Well, it's it's Jedi," but it's really hard to say the word Jedi and not assume you mean regular Jedi because the spelling is so vastly different. You know, I mean that's that's going to be part of the fun, absolutely. Well, here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions—questions questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. How do you say Jedi? You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. This episode, we look at Tim Levin's Dawn of the Jedi into the Void. Now, before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you our quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's Arrogance. Yeah, I gotta say, this was an, an, an odd one. One that I was looking forward to, but at the same time kind of cringing at. Because I like the Dawn of the Jedi comic series. And there have been mixed results when we try to tell stories in one media, or one medium and then have something tying into it from another. Sometimes it goes great, sometimes it kind of flops. Uh, sometimes you wind up with a crucial piece of the story that's missing if you don't read both. Other times they're able to work together but not be something where you're forcing people to jump between media. Um, it was sort of a big question mark out there for a little while. And it turned out to be pretty decent. I and mean, we're dealing with a story here that's by a guy who's never written a Star Wars story before, but he's written tons and tons and tons of books uh, most of which have been dark fantasy and horror, oddly enough, um, but given that this really doesn't have that feel most of the time. And we get a story that's relatively fast-paced. Um, well, sort of. Okay, we get two stories, one of which is relatively fast-paced. We have a story here that's being <laughs> told uh, kind of like my greater good, uh, I, so I'm, I'm definitely someone who's familiar with this type of storytelling and the, the benefits of it. Um, you've got basically one storyline in the present, and we'll get into the whole chronological aspects of this. Um, but suffice to say, the story in the present is not when we think it is. If you look at the interior timeline of this, uh, it says that, uh, yeah, circa 25,793 years before Star Wars A New Hope, Dawn of the Jedi into the Void. Yeah, not so much. Apparently, and this is according to Leland Chi now, okay, the dates for the Force War and such seem to be off on the Old Republic website the way that it was originally set up. Okay, so basically, the, the Dawn of the Jedi uh, Force Storm storyline 
starts out with a bunch of flashbacks to the past. I mean, it's not really flashbacks so much as it's, you know, building up in that first issue to what the present will be for Dawn of the Jedi. It starts in 36,453 BBY. And then they keep saying that in every other issue for a while, even though, no, that's not actually when the issues take place. Um, the website for the Old Republic says that the Force War, which we know is coming in the third arc of the comic series, uh, is going to be in 22,140 BTC before the Treaty of Coruscant, or translated uh, 25,793 BBY, which you would figure works, given the fact that that's also the date that is inside the book here for this. Uh, turns out, no, that is actually not the case. Uh, that makes the dates for a bunch of flashbacks and uh, and journal entries and stuff based on the Thoyor calendar in this book not make any sense whatsoever. Um, instead, what's happened apparently is that they've decided that Force Storm and Prisoner of Bogan and Into the Void and Eruption, the little short story that's in it, um, all those stories are taking place 10 years later than we thought that they did. It's not 25,793 BBY, it's 25,793. 83 BBY. It is the 93 when the flashbacks, the majority of the flashbacks of the story are taking place, as opposed to being when the bulk of the story takes place, which is not something we usually see. So we've got a main storyline in 25,783 BBY uh, that is not only running in parallel in parts to Force Storm, it actually crosses into bits of Force Storm at the end, and crosses over also with uh, the Adventures of Lenore Brock, that sort of journal entry thing that we got uh, online, and is preceded by Eruption, the short story that is included in the back of this book and is also in Star Wars Insider number 141. That story is a present-day sort of race against time, stop the evil madman who happens to be a member of the family from doing something terrible and horrible that could destroy everything, yada, yada, yada. Of course, we know it's not going to happen because everything still exists for the future, and on the flip side of that, you have a much more slow-paced story mm -hmm. where we see the, the past, where we see the training uh, of Dalian Brock and Lenore Brock as they are trying to become Jedi, or Jedi. Um, and it, it's, it makes for a very interesting trek around Tython. Like, basically, their trek gives you a cool way to learn more about Tython as a planet and that setting, the world building. Yeah. Whereas 10 years later, approximately, we've got the present day stuff, which is able to give us sort of a tour around the system, kind of like Prisoner of Bogan did. But the, my, my concern about it, the thing that, that, that got me about it when I was reading it, though, that killed the pacing for me a lot of the time, was the slow pace of those past segments. When I was doing Greater Good, one of the things that I had to fight with was, do I want to tell the flashbacks, and granted in that case it was things happening in the future because it's a time travel story, but it's earlier in the lifespan of the main characters, did I want to show these so-called flashbacks in chronological order? Because if you show it in chronological order, yes, you can build two storylines at the same time, but you also might lose some of the dramatic impact of certain moments, certain revelations that you want to show. Instead, I decided to do them out of order, but that meant that each one had to be set apart somehow so you had your main text, you had your future-slash-flashback texts, all with little time notations, the way that you would in, say, a Karen Travis Star Wars novel. And then when we had something that was more of a dream-slash-vision-slash-telepathic communication and memory, 
that would be done all in italics. You could tell a difference between all these different types of storytelling that are going on in this fairly complex tale. In this case, there is nothing to set apart the past segments and the present segments visually. There are no notations of when you're jumping back and forth between them. That by itself was somewhat disorienting, though not that difficult to keep up with. But he tells the past yeah. story in chronological order. And we're being told from very early on in this book, ooh, years ago something bad happened with her brother. Ooh, it's like what happened with her brother. Ooh, her brother went bad. Ooh, brother, 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 what's up, brother? And we get to a My point... My brother. We get to a point, though, where since we know that's coming and... We don't know – we know that they don't know much about the brother's fate because that's part of the mystery of what's going on, and it's being told mainly from Lenore's point of view. So it's not like she's going to all of a sudden reveal that, oh, wow, I actually remember something that for the entire book I haven't been remembering. To me, all the past segments, while interesting, dragged on and on. Every time something would pop up for that years ago flashback, I would be just waiting and begging for it to end so we could get <laughs> back to the action. And because you've got these two stories going on, you don't get much depth with either of them. You get some basic characterization for each of the characters, mainly uh, Lenore herself a little bit uh, for her companion. But for the most part, it felt as though um, the characterization we get here is more like the characterization we tend to get in a comic rather than in a novel. The opportunity is not taken to give that much more depth to the individual characters. And it has, as we'll talk about when we get to the spoiler point, sort of one of those deus ex machina uh, or machina kind of things where there's a story point that is developed briefly every so often for no other point than to be the ultimate out for a character at the end. Um, it is the blood of the main enemy from Star Trek into darkness type moment. And it kills some of the, the impact for me because it never fully gets explained, and you're sitting there like, well, what is this for? What is this for? Gee, I wonder what they're setting this up for. And it feels so completely out of place with the rest of it that you know it's just going to be, at some point, uh, it, it's going to be that magical thing that's going to change the story in some way. And in this case, it winds up being the get-out-of-death-free card. And I, I don't know. Just uh, It's a good book. I would say that it is somewhere between if Kenobi was a really, really good book, and uh, Razor's Edge is the un inoffensive, doesn't tie into anything, paper thin, could have been written in the, 19, the late 1970s, early 1980s Star Wars book that just makes me go, nyeh, after I finish reading it. This is somewhere in between. It's better than Razor's Edge. It's not nearly as good as Kenobi. And that's unfortunate given that this ties into the comic series. Um, but... Apparently, they're not entirely sure how they want to tie it into the comic series, at least from a publishing standpoint, because we get, for the second time ever, an inserted comic preview of Dawn of the Jedi, just like we got with Knight Errant in the Knight Errant novel. And they say, check out this exclusive preview of the first issue of Dawn of the Jedi, Prisoner of Bogan. And then they give us a preview of the second issue of Prisoner of Bogan. Um, yeah, you don't even know which comic you're sticking inside your novel. That's not a good sign. Anyway, good value. You get... The preview, you get the, the regular story, you get the short story that was also in Insider. Um, uh, good book. Uh, I would read it if you're into Dawn of the Jedi. In fact, I think that you should read Force Storm and then read this. But there's just something not quite there. And some of the references to, like, uh, to Dagon look don't make sense. Because given when uh, some of these flashbacks take place and when she's making references to Dagon look, I, 
as far as I know, he, she, he's not supposed to be on Bogan yet when she's referencing, you know, as kids, we were told stories about Dagan Loke. They were, you know, uh, uh, cautionary tales. Yeah, except he hasn't done anything yet, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't aware, or maybe I was, I just subconsciously purged it. I did not realize that Eruption was an insider. I like the fact that insider short stories are finding their way into the books. That is nice. Uh, you know, I'm still going to get my insider for that exclusive fiction, but I like the fact that it's finding its way onto my bookshelf because, you know, my primary collection is the bookshelf. Uh, when they had that issue in the middle of this, though, I really think they dropped the ball because it should have been Dawn of the Jedi number zero. I pulled that issue out while I was reading all the flashbacks, you know, because they were naming all these places, all these caches and stuff and bust that out. You know, you're able to look, you see pictures of some of the characters, you see the locations that they're at. I found that was really cool. You got to see uh, what Lanaray's ship looks like. Uh, uh, Dalian's ship, you could see kind of what his was based off of the sister ship. Uh, he had the Death Blaster, but there's a picture of a Death Stalker in there. Things like that. And I thought, you know, the, the book would have been better served if they put that Zero issue in there because that was just really cool to get that visual aspect of it. And once I pulled that out, I got more out of the past one. You know, you were saying how you were kind of wishing that the past one would wrap up and move to the other one. I, I was having the same, but more like I was more curious of the past than I was the present. I was kind of wishing that they would have moved all the past stuff and give us the past first and then jumped forward and told it. But as you just described, I, I get where the author was going for. It just wasn't one that I, I think I would have rather had it as two separate stories versus two stories that have been shuffled together. Uh, it worked. It it worked in a way that I would describe as interesting. I was very interested going into this. I wanted to know more. I, I did enjoy the comic that we've got so far. Uh, and the whole aspect of balance, you know, what is what is balance to a Jedi? Or in this case, the Jedi. Uh, you know, and I'm going to bounce back and forth with how I say it. I'm going to try to stick with Jedi, but be aware that I am saying it as the J-E apostrophe D-A-I-I Jedi. Uh, so that was cool. The whole concept of the balance in the force. And when one goes one way or sways the other and how that worked out, the relationship between the family, uh, you know, Lannery and her brother and the fact that her brother was basically kind of force blind, no non force sensitive at all, but everyone was kind of assuming that given time he would. And I was really liking that, that added pressure to his character. So there was parts of me that was like, you know, feeling sympathetic for him. And then there were other parts of me that were kind of getting frustrated with him because of how he would react and, and, and different things. And I don't know the, the, the complex relationship there, there was a story there that was building up that I was interested in right away, you know, and, and yeah, you know, you didn't know exactly how he had died and that kind of build up kind of had me itching to know too. So I, I wanted that answered, but as we went along, there were other questions that were rising up and I was kind of like, man, I want this first one answered. And it took a long time and we got to the answer. It wasn't quite as satisfactory as I was hoping for, but it did make sense. Uh, and there was a lot of times where I found myself, you know, thinking these Jedi are kind of, uh, kind of almost dark siders in the sense of, you know, they don't care about their reputation. They're, uh, I don't know. They're kind of like, uh, like the SWAT team, I guess of, of the military forces or the policing forces, you know, like these guys come in and it's all, Oh boy, here we go. You know, <laughs> like we're in trouble now. The SWAT's here, but I like the aspect of, of the, the lack of the sabers and we see swords. Uh, there were moments where the book would go from being something that I could read to my kids to, well, maybe I shouldn't be reading this. Uh, and mainly it was every time that sword came out. It was like the sword came out and the story got a little dark. So I could see where Tim writes some horror novels and stuff like that because in those moments when Lannery was taking lives, the book got very dark. And and I was kind of 
conflicted with that because there are parts of me that were really enjoying it. There are parts of me going, you know, it didn't need to be that dark. And <laughs> so that's where I'm conflicted because I, I like a good dark story. New Jedi Order, those are some of my favorite stuff because of how dark and gritty they got. But the bouncing back and forth between something that, like I say, a, a 10-year-old could be reading and then something that goes a little more graphic with heads being chopped off and things like that. I'm like, ooh, I, 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 I don't know if I was recommending this to a younger audience, if I would say this would be one that you should jump into right away, this might be something to hold out for until you're a little bit ready to be, you know, getting into more grisly kind of deaths. Cause there was a couple, you know, not too many, but there were moments and those moments kind of had me stop and, and do pause. And I think that's that question mark you were talking about, Nathan, when we go into a new era and stuff, you know, you don't know what you're going to get. So that bouncing back and forth worked, like you said, the, the past stuff kind of, world building you know and, and that's where that zero issue if you have that zero issue and you're reading this pull it out do yourself a favor you know get some visual with that world building because that that worked really well and i love the way that tim added mystery i mean you know here we're, we're in a book that's the farthest back in the timeline okay the only thing farther back in the timeline than this is the other comics in the same era but there's nothing beyond that and now he has created the old city he's given us some stuff about that degree what's going on with their their histories and suddenly you know you're, you're 25,000 years in the past and you want to know even farther back just because of the little bits and, and tidbits he gave you and honestly i didn't think i'd care about what came before this even you know because i'm so interested in how do the, how do these guys evolve into the jedi because of the whole balance aspect and the way that they view the force it's so, you know, I, I've said it before, it's kind of like a, a, a redo, a reboot of the concepts of what it is to be a Jedi and everything because it's so different yet so similar. Uh, and, and that's that's the the question mark because you're going into this and you're really like, well, what are, what are they going to do? What does balance mean? What does that look like? And, you know, he did a good job of describing it, though I, I will say, though, that uh, John Ostrander in Eruption, I kind of feel like he got it through to me in a way that I understood better. Uh, when he was dealing with with Hawk Rose character in Lannery. Um, I, I kind of like the way he described it a little more. Tim kind of left it a little nebulous where it was kind of like you kind of fill in the gaps a little, which it works. But at the same time, from a force philosophy standpoint, as somebody who's been on forums and stuff, when it comes to nebulous ideas like that, it can be ran with in multiple ways. I haven't seen anybody run with it in a way that I haven't thought of yet, but I'm interested to see what other people thought. And from a world-building standpoint, I will give them this. Um, there's a couple of things that they do in this that, to me, uh, and this is something I I did a little bit with some of the stuff that I've written. It's it gives you a sense of the mood of the story in that each chapter not only begins with a uh, just a, a name for the chapter as opposed to just being chapter one, chapter two. Yeah, for instance, chapter nine, scars, uh, gives you a sense of it and. Each one begins with a quote. Uh, I was a reader of the old uh, Jack McKinney, Brian Daly, slash James Luceno uh, Robotech books for a long time, and they all begin with a quote from somewhere, each of which is dated, which is a little bit more about the, the development of the Jedi and their history, or the Jedi and their history. Uh, for instance, we've got in Chapter 9, uh, the Jedi say, there is no ignorance, there is knowledge, but they are ignorant of your lives, your struggles, and their superiority blinds them. They say, there is no fear, there is power. Yet in their power they are smug, and I will make them fear me. From the despot queen uh, Hadia, the one whose uh, backstory plays so much of a role into not only bits and pieces of this story, but also into um, the backstory of Dagon Loke when we see him in Prisoner of Bogan and after and such. So it's a great book for world building, and it is, as you were saying, it's very much like the issue zero to the comic series, and I too was pulling out issue zero to, to visualize a lot of the places that they talk about within 
this story. It almost feels as though he was sitting there writing it with a map of Tython in front of him, saying, okay, here's how I'm going to get from here to here to here. How do I get to all these different places? Get great world building. Not sure that it's the best as far as pacing goes, at least during the great journey for Lenori and uh, Dalian. But I guess that uh, we can yeah. move into with spoilers here. So, so well, yeah, pacing pacing is definitely the thing that threw me off in this, and that's that's where I go back and forth with would I want it in two separate forms? I, I think yes, but I get where Tim went, you know. And, and as you point out, there's another uh, one of these quotes that goes, "Never forget that we were brought here." Tython is a planet rich in the Force, but it is also a place of mystery, unknown to us, existing here for eons before the Thoyor arrived. Its age is depth. Its stories deeper. We are but residents here. Our true home is in the Force. Master Dila Jan Morola. And I like the aspect of how the Thoyors bringing them there was such a fundamental aspect for Dalen. I mean, that... that I kept, that's the part of me that kept relating to his character. I was just like, okay, I, I get where he's coming from. He wants out. He wants to, to go home. You know, I, I got that. And the fact that no one would even bother to help him, there were times where I was really kind of siding with him going, you know, these Jedi need taken down. Yeah, I guess that, that we can move that into sort of saying that, that we're in a spoiler territory now. So, so spoiler alert. We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. Yes, consider here. that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentience of All Ages, because here we go. I think that uh, the, the, the driving force behind the main villain of the story, the, the concept here is basically what you've got, in case you haven't read it, that you have uh, Dalian Brock, who is Lenore's brother. He has been missing for ten years. As they are going through their Jedi training, their great journey, um, well, it missing turns and out, presumed dead. I right, mean, that's, that's that's key too. <laughs> right, it, it turns out basically that he does not have the Force attunement that she does, and he's finding ways to compensate, and it's it's causing inner turmoil for him. I mean, it's it's sort of like the opposite of the kind of source of turmoil as we got with Anakin. In Anakin's case, it was. He was expect great things were expected of him because of his great force attunement, because he could be the chosen one. And in Dalian's case, it's basically not look at all these things you can do. How are you going to use it? It's look at all these things we expect you to be able to do, and yet you can't do any of them. How are you going to compensate? You are a failure not because of something that you have done or not done, but because of things that inherently you cannot do. And in his case. He's very much like what we see in some of the flashback stuff in that first issue of Dawn of the Jedi, in which they talk about how it gets to a point where the non-Force users on Tython simply leave. They're the ones that colonize the rest of the system because of their lack of connection to Tython and the dangers that are involved there. And in that sense, he is one of these people who sort of feel trapped, and he wants to get out of the Tython system. They were brought there essentially against their will. They have been there for so long... That it is their home. The Tython system is their home, but there's always that sense of wanting to stretch beyond. It reminds me of, and this isn't a perfect analogy, reminds me of uh, uh, the Black Liberation Movement uh, and that the Nation of Islam was part of um, back uh, in the last few decades. The idea of, you know, Africans were brought here as slaves, became part of the melting pot of the United States as African Americans. But there is still part of a movement out there that says that despite how uh, how integral they are to the United States and how long 
these people and their ancestors and their ancestors and their ancestors have been part of the United States, there is a small contingent who still wants to have some sort of independence from the United States because of that history of being brought here forcibly. You know, I wasn't, uh, my students who are mostly African American were not, their parents were not, their parents were not, on going back, but at some point in the history of the race, yes, there were those who were brought uh, against their will, and that will always color the way that some look at their place within society. And in a sense, that's what Dalian is. It's the idea that everybody was brought there against their will, so to an extent he wants to reach out beyond. It's, it's essentially that their home, their true home is not really Tython, especially for those who are not Force-sensitive. So he is part of a group called the Stargazers, and the idea is that they want to find a way out of the Tython system, and they believe they may have found it through an old Gree Hypergate in the, that's, that's rumored to be in the old city on Tython. And if he can get his hands on dark matter, he might be able to initiate or initialize that technology, use the hypergate to get out of the system. But it also has the possible ramifications that if it's done wrong, it could destroy the Tython system and just continue growing. Um, in a sense, he's putting everyone's lives at stake, the entire society and the entire system's lives at stake, on the chance they may be able to escape. So you can sort of, you can empathize with what he wants. But he is, like many villains, many of the best villains in storylines, you know, where you can feel as though, you know, you, they're, they're doing something that isn't by itself inherently evil. But he is willing to put others at risk for what he wants, and that in and of itself is what makes him the villain. So as she's chasing him, with the help of the Twi'lek Tresana, um, to try to stop him, uh, sort of a race against time, whereas the other storyline is basically telling the story of their great journey and how he slowly but surely... Um, eventually tries to find his own way and is not willing to stick with the Jedi way of life anymore. The more he realizes that he will never have the kind of force connection that, that Lenore does, uh, the more he realizes that he needs to get out of there and he eventually will commit a brief act of violence, as you would expect, and that will lead into him eventually going into the old city and, and supposedly disappearing uh, for a long time. So it's a, it's a story where you can empathize, empathize, I think, with both sides of it, but it's another one of these things where it may have been nice to see a little bit more into Dalian's background and his motivations and his side of things. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't feel quite as balanced because pretty much all of it is told from the point of view of Lenore. Mm -hmm. So you don't get to see I – mean, when you see his justifications, it's his arguments to her. It's his arguments when he's uh, boasting after capturing her at one point, for instance. You don't get quite as much depth on his side of things to make you think, hmm, which side really is right? And if Dalian weren't putting people in danger, would he be the mm -hmm. one who is in the right because of what he wants? I think there's more complex questions that could be asked about the story that don't get a chance to get asked as much as they probably should. Oh, absolutely. That That's exactly the thing that, that kept striking me was had he not killed a couple people along the way, he, in my mind, was justified. I mean, okay, the, the Hypergate, they never established that it was actually there. I mean, even even by the end of the book, when he goes to activate it, there's no hypergate around where they're at. They never at all solidify that. Yes, there actually is a hypergate down there. I mean, I mean, it's all just a rumor. And then there's the rumor that this dark matter will, you know, if it's used with the hypergate, well, it could create a black hole. But there's all this could be's and would be's and stuff. And it's like they're preemptively striking out against him because of a potential thing. I mean, he could have easily created a, a gate and got out of there and just bloop, I'm out. 
and and hey, look at this. I created a great wormhole where we can travel back and forth. But no, they were so concerned that it might potentially create this black hole that they were willing to off him to stop him from doing it. And that was the side that that, that kind of I was just like, wow, is he bad or good? And then he goes and he does these murders and other things. Oh. And I'm like, okay, well, he is kind of condemned. I gotta say though, uh, that's one of these things where I mean, we're used to in in real world perspective, in Earth perspectives, we're used to the idea that. Uh, threats are generally, uh, relative compared to this at least, relatively limited, right? I mean, we're talking about you know, uh, you know, maybe tens of people dying, hundreds of people dying, thousands of people dying, perhaps. Uh, generally, not with the exception of nuclear uh, weapons, millions dying. And the case of nuclear weapons, you know, we do have sort of the same type of thing going on. This idea of of a preemptive strike. It's it's like the idea that. You know, we can react to, and this is a Bush doctrine thing, um, the idea that we can react to threats after the threat has already passed is fine if you're willing to allow those lives to originally be lost to confirm the guilt of whoever it is that does it. If you're talking from a peacekeeping and a protection standpoint, if you see a threat that threatens everyone or threatens a mass number of people, you put yourself in the position of either allowing deaths before you act or you act preemptively not knowing whether they ever would have pulled it off. Very much like, say, what Israel's dealing with right now with Iran. Iran's slowly working their way towards, you know, uh, nuclear power, the whole red line issue and such. Um, and there's the question of, well, what will Israel or the United States do about that? Will they attack first to make sure that, that Iran can't get their hands on those weapons? Um, but it brings up the same types of questions that you get with something like, say, Minority Report. Um, the idea of yeah. future crime, pre-crime. Um, uh, anytime you're dealing with the idea of an unknown future, any act that you take preemptively could always be second-guessed later on. But I think in this case, at least, you know, the Je the Jedi here are certainly within their rights to do something about him, whether it's lock him up or whatever. Um, if we're talking about something where, you know, if the, the only way you'll if the, if the only way you'll know that he's actually done the act, so now we should go arrest him, is oh look, he just opened something and destroyed the entire system. Now we're all dead then, yeah, they've got to do something acting preemptively on this. Though I will say the actions taken because of this era, and I wonder if this is why they got Lebanon to be the one to write this, um, they are, as you were saying, I think, earlier on, uh, they are a lot more brutal than what we normally see because this is not an era of lightsabers. Zesh doesn't arrive until the events of Force Storm, which parallel the very last couple chapters of this book. They've never seen a Force Saber, let alone a lightsaber at this point. So the, the blades are all these Madog steel blades, uh, Tim Madog uh, forged steel. So generally what we get is a lot of gore relative to what we usually see in Star Wars. We're used to seeing a lightsaber slash someone and it just instantly cauterizes the wound. Not this time. Instead, we get a slash and, you know, blood's just coming down. I think by the end, Dalian's missing an arm and he's got a, the blade embedded in his head. Yeah, that um, was he's brutal. <laughs> to me, that that reminded me very much of the last moments of uh of the original Underworld, the first Underworld, where Celine leaps with the sword and comes down and whoosh, slashes across Victor's face. Um, very similar to that in a sense. So, very very brutal here, and maybe that's what gives us a moment of pause of wow, they really want to wipe this guy out before he can do anything. But uh, this along, I mean, once you start talking Hypergate's destruction, Death Stars. Sun Crushers, uh, Eclipse-class Star Destroyers, the Galaxy Gun, etc., etc., etc. As soon as you start talking that, you're into a realm in which I think that preemptive strikes are the only type 
of rational response to these threats. You can't sit back and say, uh, now, now, Mr. Brock, if you go to open that hypergate, we're gonna have to spank you, because once he does, it could be all over. Well, but it gets back to the aspect of there's so much that even they don't know. They don't know why the Thoyors picked them up. And, and that's something I would love to know. The Thoyors are above all these caches. Can they get into them? I mean, th none of that stuff was ever described. And I think the lack of that knowledge left me kind of sympathizing with Dalen. I mean, it was like I, I can kind of get why, you know, hey, you want to leave the system. But everyone seems to be very hell bent that, no, you can't. The, the, all you can do is colonize these other planets or get on a sleeper ship and we'll launch out into the deep space. Uh, you know, that was something that just it, it kept bouncing back and forth with me. There were a lot of really cool moments, though, uh, you know, aspects about this. Wait, that, can, that let me just, ask you. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, go for since, it. Since we're on that topic of, of being able to emphasize, empathize, I keep screwing up the word, with uh, Dalian, do you think that that is something that came out of this book because of what we got from his side and, and the words that he spoke and that sort of thing, his side as presented in the story? Or is it more a matter of the lack of some measure of depth that we got with Lenori, because it doesn't feel like she really got much development throughout the story. She is, she feels by the end of it just as conflicted about her brother and how her mission is to stop him and she doesn't want to kill him, but she may have to kill him. And oh gee, thinking about their past, it doesn't feel as though her character changes throughout the course of the story. Is it that his character is, if not developed more, at least more intriguing and that draws us to him because she's not as developed? Or is it really that his side is the one that seems more attractive? I, I, I well, wonder see, I if guess this I see it different because I didn't see her as being very undeveloped. I, I kind of saw her point of view on Dylan as, as part of why I felt sympathetic for him. I mean, page 22, uh, she's talking about, you know, I'm only two years older than him, mother. True, but the force is strong in you. You welcome it, and it nurtures you. Your father and I both sense your strength, and we also sense Dal's weakness. He and the Force, there's little love lost. And then she goes, well, he'll learn, Mother. He has you and Father to look up to. You're powerful, Jedi, and he'll be the same. But you are destined to follow us, I believe, her mother says. She smiles at Lannery, but there's little joy here. But my worries for Dal are genuine and heartfelt. His interest in the distant past, our ancestors, and history outside the system, places on Tython like the old city. I'm afraid his fate leads away from the Force, away from Tython. And... You know, the parents' concern and how it translates to, to then even Lannery's concern. It's kind of like, you know, they all, they're all in the Force, so they all assume he needs to be in the Force. Even the teacher's like, well, if you just open yourself up to the Force. And it seems like that's a concept that this era is forgetting. It's like, he doesn't have a choice, but they're all treating him like he does. And, like, having that choice kind of shoved down his throat, like, I started to kind of react to that. It's like, this kid has no choice, and you're just, you're forcing him to take this great journey when when other people, you've sent him off the planet because, the, you know, they can't handle it, and yet, can't you clearly see he's a non-Force user? Oh, wait, what, Mom and Dad are both Jedi, so, oh, he's gotta be. I mean, obviously, there is a, a lack of information as to how that works on the Jedi side of things, because they're clearly expecting him to have a relationship with the Force here. I mean, as a, she she calls it a weakness. She doesn't say that, well, he just doesn't have it. I mean, they just all assume, well, it's either going to grow or something bad's going to happen. And it's like, really? Like, that's his only options? You guys are Jedi, so he's he's got to be one? Like, I, I don't know. It, there were moments where, where, where Lana Ree's, like, using a bar on in her cot to uh, get exercise because she believes you need to be strong in body, you know, and things like that. And, and 
I don't know. I felt her character was developed, but I thought the conflict was part of the development. I, I thought that her conflict with her brother went into that whole balance. And that was all part of how Tim kind of showed us how the balance worked. That's that's where John Ostrander to me did a better job of kind of getting that balance out there where Tim used the whole book to kind of give you it from Lannery's perspective. But you kind of got to be looking at that. Whereas John kind of threw it right in your face. You know, there are moments where Tim does that, but for the most part, it's very subtle. I guess she, she certainly develops from the child segments to the adult segments. You can see a difference between the character in the two time periods. It just feels as though the, the character of Lenore, when we meet her in the present to when we leave her in the present, doesn't seem to have much of a change with the exception of, well, now she's got one less brother out there. Um, but I do agree that, that that what we see in the past with the way that she and her her parents, what they expect of, of Dalian is certainly something that it's akin to these days if you have a student who is uh, dyslexic. And it's, well, if he would just try to read harder, if he would just spend more time with the books, then he'll be able to read, which isn't really what you do when you've got someone who has a fundamental, in that case, a, a learning disability, which in... Uh, in the case of Dalian, that it's, sort of is. It's 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 being unable to learn about the Force in that way, I guess, is one way you could put it. Um, so, yeah, but again, that's more of, of what we get from him, I guess. So I guess it, in response, then it would be that he does get, we do get drawn to him because of the way we see others react to him more so than, uh, than I guess, Lenore. What did you think about, since I know we're, we're already at like probably 45 minutes in or something like that, um, what about the, the alchemy of the flesh? She takes a mortal wound in which she should die. And they keep talking about, there's this secret thing that she keeps, a secret thing aboard the ship. She has this ability that's darker. And all these little hints that never really get much fruition. And then you, you're like, aha. She opens up this container and she's got, it's like some kind of weird protoplasmic, somehow like part of her that she's like grown. And if she takes it and, like, mushes it into herself and grafts it into herself, then the Force will let it become part of her and she will be healed. To well, me, that, that was an experimental procedure, though. Right, but, <laughs> but to me, that was the ultimate cheat in this story. It's interesting, and it tells you something about how the uh, the Jedi of this time, uh, with the, the Jedi with the apostrophe of this time, are willing to dabble in things that we think of as Sith alchemy most of the time. There is a, a a a blurring of the lines between the two sides of the Force and everything here. And in that sense, very cool, and it adds a darkness to Lenore's character that you don't usually expect to find in a hero because of our gut reaction to the idea of Sith alchemy. But wasn't that just a a a forced cheat? In this story, that it was something that it felt like it was shoehorned in there every other time we get a reference to it, just for this moment in which she manages to somehow cheat death, um, so that we can feel, oh no, she's going to die. Oh wait, no, she's not. She had that thing that they've sort of ham-fistedly smacked us with repeatedly throughout the story here. To me, that was, again, it's not a story that's clumsy. But that was a clumsy moment within the story. I think otherwise the story plays out fairly well and fairly smoothly, even if not always at the pacing that I would like. But that felt like the the clumsy moment of the storytelling. Well, we definitely saw it coming. I mean, you know, there was, okay, why is she using it? But I, I thought it, it served well to ground that that was the one dark obsession she had. Uh, you know, the, the, the one thing she couldn't quite let go. She knew there was danger in there. She was kind of addicted to it. 
there was also another moment where she took, I believe it was like a, a skin cell or something like that. And she, I don't know, she put it in the guy's eye or something like that. And it worked its way into the brain. And then she used it to control the guy for a little bit. There were a lot of interesting powers showing up. Another one was uh, forced telepathy. You know, they're flat out talking to each other in each other's mind, which got to that aspect of, of Dale being left out because, you know, the master's having full on conversations with Lannery and, and Dal's right there and he's, he's not able to have it at all. Uh, there were uses of the words like like uh, Lannery forces an illusion uh, when she does force illusions. Like they they use not not just that she forced, but she forces the illusion onto people. Uh, there were things like that. They they used the word uh, elemental force at times. A, a lot of concepts that that got my mind going, and I was intrigued. But that whole aspect of the alchemy, like I've always associated alchemy with with dark mojo kind of stuff. Uh, the Sith species always had an had an affinity for alchemy so i thought it was kind of telling that uh it was a sith uh master that was doing most of that kind of stuff as well inside the temple uh so that was kind of cool kind of like a throw in there that you know hey the species kind of already was dealing with alchemy kind of stuff and you know the 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 threat there with the alchemy is that it does lead to a darkness and i like the fact that she and and the other jedi are are prevalently aware of this fact you know there's a moment where uh, uh she talks about uh she wants to scream in fury and fear, but instead she finds serenity and balance, you know, and I, there are these moments where that happens and I'm just like, so that's, is that how the balance is working here for her? I mean, cause you know, with the alchemy, it's like, that's such a, a, a twisting of life and stuff. And then she, like you said, she uses it to bring herself back. The thing I, I think that why it, it wasn't so forced for me was that it was something that she was experimenting with. No one had done anything like that before. No one had even tried to use their alchemy to save themselves. And, that's while it worked that's a doorway to some very evil dark mojo so i like that fact that you know we're still in an era of you know good and bad are are not just seen as good and bad but but the bigger overall and that you got to find that balance and yet here is something that saved her and while being good has the potential for bad or being abused and it gets back to that you know that question of you know when do you do a preemptive strike i mean do you preemptively strike her hand and say stop stop no more alchemy that that way leads to bad stuff because that's what they did with dalen i mean i i get back to that aspect of of the fact that they want to keep and that's what it felt like they felt like the jedi wanted to keep everyone in the system you know like if you wanted to leave well you could only do it in these slow manners uh, and that was what kind of ticked me off i mean they really had no idea about the technology they were just flat out assuming the worst with the technology nobody bothered to assume the best no one ever stopped to think you know hey dalen's been been looking at the at the past for so long maybe he's found something i mean no one stopped to think about that fact that you know he could easily come across stuff there's a moment where uh, uh one of these jedi uh kara uh, an ex Jedi. They don't know exactly. They never tell you full on what it was, but I had this feeling like she was the first human that was starting to morph into a hut. Like they kind of, <laughs> like she was like elongating her bones and, and, and was on a big dais, very hut like in appearance, but she was still humanoid, but it was kind of like she was experimenting on herself in that regard. But she too looked to the stars. I, there was all that aspect of, of, you know, what's going on with her group. Uh, she had this, this diary from someone that went down in the old city and, and all this stuff. And, and, there were these aspects that they could have, you know, proven some of the things that Dalian was doing, yet they didn't even bother to look. They just kept going with that assumption that, well, he's just going to destroy everything. He's going to kill us all. We got to stop him. But it was like, you know, he could have just as easily have found proof that all this stuff existed, but it just seemed like, 
no one wanted to even stop and take the time. They just it'd be so quicker to just keep him shushed. We got to keep everyone here because this is a great place for us force users. You know, I, I don't care that you don't have the force and and that it's difficult for you to live on this planet. Go live in one of the other ones. You know, there's plenty of other planets in this system. What you want to go farther than that? Shut up. Get back here. Oh, we'll just wipe your mind or something. I don't know. I started to get that feeling like, you know, the Jedi weren't as pure and, and good as they could be. And I guess that's part of the point, you know, that these aren't the Jedi that we're used to. And that was difficult at times to wrap my head around. You know, I did like the Kara character. I mean, aside from the fact that she she provides her her home base, whatever you want to call it, her tower provides the impetus for an action sequence Um pretty much straight out of the beginning of the original The Force Unleashed, uh, where they have to uh, crash down out of the uh, uh, the tower and land on the ship that's it's going by and everything. Um, but I like the idea of Kara and the concept of the shunned. And it kind of makes me, thinking back to what you were saying about how you, you only have the slow way out of the Jedi, or the Jedi, um, I don't know. It seems more like Dalian was held there by the expectations of him until he found a way out in a lot of ways. Because Kara and the Shunned are essentially, she's she's sort of like a precursor, her and the Shunned, they're like precursors to the Lost 20, in that what you've got is uh, someone who could not find the balance between the light side and the dark side, and eventually got so disgusted with the Force in general that they left the Jedi Order. And now here she is, you know, she set herself up tied into the Stargazers and everything. Um, I like the idea that this era has that... Um, that concept, and that it's not quite the same way. It seems like in just like in this in this time, the line between light and dark with the Jedi, um, it's not all black and white. Uh, in the modern day, yeah, a lot of times it's thought of as black and white, light and dark, Jedi Sith, Jedi dark, Jedi, etc., etc. So people who are in the middle aren't generally tolerated. You're thought of as having fallen to the dark side if you've left the Jedi or you've left the Jedi path, um, or you are a Jedi. You know, you're, you're one or the other. The idea of someone who is gray and in the middle uh, is unusual. That's why the whole Imperial Knights thing was so intriguing with uh, Legacy. But as we've talked about before in that, it seems like they're more light side. It's just that they take orders from someone other than the order itself. They take orders from the Emperor or the Empress in that era. Here, what we've got is an entire group within society, a big enough group to get a name, the Shunned, who by choice left the Jedi Order and in doing so... Um, be, they do so because of that disgust with the Force itself, not political ideology like in the case of, say, Dooku, um, and have broken away. I like that, and I hope they explore that a little bit more, um, because it certainly seems as though... I mean, yes, we saw Dooku leave the Jedi Order, but it seems like in the prequel era, generally if we see somebody leave the Jedi Order, it's because they are forced out. Uh, it's very rarely someone who chooses simply to leave, at least until the Clone Wars itself breaks out. And if they choose to leave, it's because they're going to supposedly fall to the dark side. See, now they're following Dooku and everything. Um, in this case, it's just, you know what? I'm sick of this crap. I'm out of here. Uh, which is not something that you would usually expect to be an option for someone who is a Force user in Star Wars. We are so used to compartmentalizing black and white that this is a welcome... Uh, refreshing thing. And I'm wondering if this is something that uh, Tim Levin created for this story, or if it's something that was already existing in this universe that uh, Dursima and Ostrander had put together. It's just something maybe we haven't seen yet in the comics. Hopefully it's going to be part of a broader tapestry. 
Well, I know I was kind of irritated at the very end where they hinted at the fact that Dal was just a patsy and that Kara was the real villain and that her group was the actual ones behind everything and that they just flat out used him and the Jedi to, to create all these events to happen. That that bothered me because there was just so little given about her that, yeah, it works, but I wanted more to kind of solidify. It's like saying Vajer was a Sith. You know, it's like, wait, that that solves so much stuff, but at the same time, that doesn't answer hardly anything. Uh, that, that that threw me off. There were some interesting moments, though. Uh, Lannery uses uh, uh, the uh, term for a female dog in heat. Uh, she also calls one of her drinks piss. I thought that was kind of funny. Like, like there was a grittiness to her character as well. Uh, there was also another moment where Dal and her, uh, they're, they're talking about being a good team. It's while they're on their great mission. And she thinks back about, you know, uh, Dal will never accept the force nor adjust to its ebb and flow. Uh, silently, he skins, guts, and butchers the creature, builds a fire, and starts cooking the meat. Everything he does is methodical and skilled. He's learned so much. Lanaray remembers overhearing their father talking to her mother once. He's like a sponge, their father said. Every question of his, I answer, inspires two more. His thirst for knowledge is insatiable. He's going to be a great Jedi one day. It saddens her how her parents could have been so wrong. Dal's skill hide a deeper void within him, a dark void, where all around expect the Force to dwell. And at last, as he starts serving the meat with a soft, sweet root vegetable they gathered earlier, she asks the question that has been burning at her. Are you sad? He gives her a plate. The food smells wonderful. Dal's expression does not shift. He knows exactly what she means. Eat your dinner, he says. We've got a long way to go yet. Are you sad? She asks again. The way you were at Stav Kesh, like a child jealous of those around you with better toys. Dal raises an eyebrow and then laughs out loud. Is that what you think? He asks. Well, you really think I'm jealous of you? Of mother and father? Of the others we trained with back there? Jealous that none of you are your own masters? Of course we are. No. He places the plate down and stands, not angry, but frustrated. No, not at all. You're slaves to the Force. You might think it serves you, but you serve it. You never have your own thoughts because the Force is always on your mind. You never fight your own fights because the Force fights it for you. It's not like that, Dal. It's, well, that's what I see, he says. I watch you use it, and when you do, you're not yourself. You're not my sister. I thought I knew what was best for you, she says, but you don't. Only I can say that. Our parents, you, the masters who trains us, everyone wants to tell me what to be, to force something upon me, but I'm my own man, my own master. And that was a moment where I was like, you know, I, I couldn't disagree with him. I'm like, you know, I could see from his standpoint where he's coming from. You know, and they're all forcing this on him. They're all treating him like he's defective. I mean, I, I don't know. There were so many of those moments where, you know, I was, I was, I was on his side. And then, when the past moment gets to the point where he ends up killing that other guy, it felt like one of those moments where it, it was like an accident. You know, he wanted to go, but they were tightening the noose around him. And I felt like he had no other choice. He made the wrong one still, but I felt like his hand was forced. And that, that's kind of where I felt like all the way through it. By the time they get to the end and Lana Ray saying, you know, well, it was Kara that, that, that talked him into it. It was like, I felt like Dell was a very tragic character by the time it was all said and done, that events corrupted him and forced him into seeing the things the way he was seeing it, but also because of the way that the Jedi were looking at things. They could have been a little relaxed. They could have been a little relenting on some of their rigidness. I mean, I, I felt like there was equal amounts of tragedy for Dell's character as it was him making wrong choices. I'm waiting for a Star Wars, or this is just something that popped in my head as you were talking there. 
about just how you know he is not what that society accepts in a sense so he is being put into this position uh, we just passed the the 75th anniversary of the night of broken glass uh, kristallnacht um the some of the actions against uh, Jews and Jewish businesses in uh, what will become Hitler's Third Reich Germany and such. Um, and just the idea if we are ever going to see a Star Wars story that takes this up to the next level and makes it so that you have a essentially a force-sensitive society that instead of, of shunning those uh, who don't agree with them or instead of saying, okay, well, you're not Force-sensitive, therefore, you know, you might as well go colonize somewhere else, or we're going to fit you into this, you know, little box of what we expect of you type stuff, if we're going to see something that's a little bit more along the lines of sort of a reverse Jedi purge, um, of a you are not Force-sensitive, therefore, you do not belong here, otherwise get out or die. Um, it's certainly there's there are the historical parallels that we've seen in other Star Wars stories. Um, I don't know that we've ever got to that point. Um, but yeah, I, I, one thing I wanted to bring up here, I guess two quick things, uh, because we're getting pretty heavy on time here a little bit. Uh, one is Tresana. We get uh, a Twi'lek that she winds up working with who is uh, an associate of Dam Powell, which is the, the master who's teaching her alchemy and all that kind of stuff. Um, this idea of someone with a criminal past who, it's not so much that he's trying to make up for his criminal past per se, as he is doing a favor for Dam Powell. She has managed to help him uh, as far as his memory goes. And the idea is that, you know, if he... If he does enough to help her, and by extension, Lenori, that eventually he will be put in a position where he can be able to live out a regular life. I, I find it interesting, the type of person, uh, that this is someone, yeah, we've seen instances where our hero has to hook up with a shady character in order to get the job done. It's very much a Luke and Han Solo type of thing. Only in this case, it's someone who essentially is being manipulated into it by someone else. Dem Powell, to me, felt like not a villain of the piece, but certainly an antagonist more so than a protagonist within this story most of the time. We also, speaking of the idea of Jedi as sort of crossing that line between light and dark and whatnot, uh, this is only, I guess it's what, 12 years after the Despot War. Uh, Queen Hadia and all that stuff and the rising up against the Jedi in the system and all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, something which her parents had been involved with and such. But we visit Nox, a place that the Jedi had bombed during the Despot War, so we get to see sort of the uh, the post-war Afghanistan, the post-war Iraq, the post-war Vietnam uh, as a visitor from, it'd be like an, an American going to Vietnam, you know, in say the 1980s and visiting the sites of many of the, the most damaged communities from the Vietnam War, uh, or someone, you know, 10 years from now from America visiting Iraq, visiting Afghanistan, and you can feel the tension that's there against the Jedi Order, and it's not something that Lenore herself had anything to do with. And she still believes in the rightness of the Jedi cause, but you see uh, the community around her having a very different perspective, even in the law enforcement being slightly less trustworthy of her than you might expect in that era. I thought that was kind of a cool environment in which to place them on their big grand tour of all the different planets and locations uh, within the system here. Again, that the world building in this novel is exceptional. It's mm -hmm. it when when it comes to world building, I would say this is right on par with the Knight Errant novel. But at the same time, just like the Knight Errant novel, it's still not quite up there with uh, with Kenobi. But it is again, it is a good book. I feel like I'm critiquing it more than I'm 
praising it much this time because there were those things that kind of stand out and make me go, oh, but usually those are the most interesting things to, you know, talk about, the deeper ideas that come out of it. See, and I got a kick out of little things like page 177. They use the term hollow suites. I'm like, oh, Deep Space Nine. Here we go. Uh, page 180, they reference Elder Gods. I thought that was interesting as heck. I mean, Elder Gods in Star Wars. Okay. There was one thing, though, that, that did jump out at me, that there were a lot of aliens being used, but it seemed like they were just interchangeable names. There were really no details ever given to the alien characters, which can work. I mean, I was never bogged down by it, but I did notice that there was a very genericness to them, that they, they would just use a name for an alien and you were kind of expected to know what that was. Nothing besides that. No, well, it had claws for hands. It was covered in fur. None of that. No description of that. Same with uh, Lannery's droid Iron Hulks. Uh, you know, there was nothing really there. I kind of got the feeling like he was kind of like an R2 type astromech, but beyond that, there wasn't too much detail. Uh, you had mentioned, though, earlier the, the Bogan lock moment. Uh, it was on page 158 where Lannery, she feels a shiver down her spine, and it goes, the only other person that ever made her feel like this, Dagon Locke, the one time she'd seen him during her short retreat on Bogan. None of the others with her party had seen him, and the master supervising them told her that it was impossible, that prisoners were kept separated by force fields. But I was kind of interested because... I mean, I was thinking, what if it was like a force vision or something? You know, what if he wasn't there or something? Well, he, he did say he's in prison, so I guess that doesn't, he can't go there. He definitely wasn't there because he doesn't wind up there for at least another two years as of when that flashback is taking place. That is one continuity error in this book that is unreconcilable. Um, unless we simply say, but, well, well, see, in the flashbacks, it may be taking place back then, but the narrator is the present day knowledge of Lenore Brock. We have that whole idea of a third-person limited form of storytelling where it's not an omniscient narrator, it's told from the perspective of one of the characters, just not in first person, so it's limited to their knowledge that instead of it being her knowledge each era that we get part of the story, that it's always her knowledge in the present thinking back on the past. That is the only way that makes any sense because uh, basically uh, uh, in, in it's, it's a two-year gap between that flashback and Into the Void, and when he, after the, five years after the, the Despite War, he goes down into the chasm and everything and has the vision that gets him um, unbalanced and causes him to be the prisoner of Bogan. He well, would not is, have been there. But the thing is, is when she has that moment vision, it's when she's with Trey and with Max Hagen. Uh, it's it, during her present. So, I mean, it could be that she's thinking back to a point that's not the flashback, but maybe even like a year after the present. I mean, you could say that and, and be legitimate. Um, you know, that, that, that what she's thinking back isn't the first flashback, but maybe it was just like a year ago on a trip. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, all it talks about was her short retreat on Bogan. They never say when that retreat is. I mean, I don't, I don't assume that it was during the Great Journey. I don't know. There's just there's a reference there that I have to go back and find it in this in the actual book. There's just a reference there to uh, and and there's a thing about you know well it, it's actually it's during the flashback the other time they mention him maybe it's not that mentioned but there's a point at which they mention him uh, two years prior to when he becomes a prisoner of Bogan and it's in a flashback not about it but in one in which she talks about how you know kids are warned about you know basically they, like he's the boogeyman of their era because of being the prisoner of Bogan and yet. He hasn't done anything to warrant that at that point. You know, there was there was another moment. It was on uh, page 215 uh, where she has a vision of the whole. Uh, let's see. What is it? The whole planet 
system. The whole system is destroyed. There's like this big ball blowing out. But the way that Tim described it, it was like I visualized the entire thing like it was a movie sequence happening. It was so cool. And it happened in a very, a very short moment. Uh, but there was also little details like Sunspot. It's a planet, uh, except for it rotates counter to all the other planets in the system. They had a quick little moment of like why they thought that might be. Uh, 237, when they're talking about the alchemy of flesh, I had this feeling of, you know, Verger was doing this uh, when she did it with her tears. I mean, Verger used her tears as the as the basis. Lannery used flesh. Uh, so it was interesting that that was an aspect of alchemy that, you know, was present in the New Jedi Order, but it was never referenced as alchemy per se. I thought that was kind of cool. Uh, and then Trey, when he has that near death death moment, that was so cool. I did not see that coming. I was I was just like saddened because the way they the way they delivered it, it's like deadpan. Like okay, it's done. You know, and you're just like, whoa, did that just happen? And you're like, this character has so much, you know, going for him. There's the whole aspect of what what the one master did to his brain where he like doesn't like exist in the force anymore. And, you know, what was the promises made and, and all that. And then you find out later that, you know, he's still got a pulse. But the way they played it from Lannery's point of view, you know, it's just like, boom, he's dead. And you're just like, oh, my God. Like, and it happened so fast. I was I was totally taken back. I was like, I did not see that happening. Yeah. The other side, though, it was the Gree. I, I, and this is the question I have for you as the Count of Continuity. The Gree have popped up more than just this era. This era, they're, they're treated like they're like this mythical ancient being. But they're still around, correct? The Gree just have forgotten about themselves and their own technology. They've become like a dumbed-down species, kind of like the Quai, right? I mean... If I if I recall correctly, the Gree are in the Imperial era, correct? I believe so. Except it's one of these things where they're it's like any historical time. Like the Maya are technically still around as a Native American tribal group in Mexico, for instance. But their society hit its height just a short time prior to when the conquistadors started coming over here from Spain. Uh, in the case of the Gree, I mean, they hit their peak a good well, it's 50,000 years ago as of, of the classic trilogy era, so a good, you know, about 25,000 years before this, they've hit their peak. The same amount of time approximately between uh, what we think of usually as Star Wars and Dawn of the Jedi um, has passed since the grief for the Dawn of the Jedi people. I mean, they are sort of this mystical, you know, almost mythic species out there, or at least their culture, their, the high point of their culture is kind of shrouded in myth and stuff because they are so ancient. Ah, now the other one was, uh, you know, when Bane goes to Tython, I, I don't recall any of the ruins or any of this stuff, you know, if granted Bane's book came out way before any of this was known, but I don't know if any of the ruins in Bane's book could be tied to this. And then it made me question, you know, were any of these locations still there? Uh, you think of the chasm and all that kind of stuff. The mysteries around these locations, even the Jedi don't know about it. You know, they've been sitting here. They've perched over the chasm. They're, they're trying to figure it out. When Hawk and when Dagon Loke go down there, they both pretty much almost go mad. I mean, there's so many mysteries about the planet itself that I still, I don't know. I don't know if, if like, you know, do we find out in the Forest Wars that most of these locations get wiped out? What happens to the Thoyors? Uh, what what's going on with the monoliths? Why do the monoliths look like Thoyors? I mean, there's still so much about this era that raises so many questions that impact the prequel and the original trilogy that I just I still want to know. And I highly doubt we ever will. We will we will be having in our hundredth episode coming up, uh, both of us giving our take on the state 
of the EU, kind of a State of the Union address type of thing. And I got to tell you, I think it's great that there are these big questions left out there. I think it's it's great fertile territory for future storytelling. I do not believe most of that storytelling is actually going to ever happen. But yeah. that's a whole nother thing. Um, so we get to a point where I guess to wrap this up, for those of you who are curious about picking this up, um, if you haven't picked it up yet, uh, it is an audiobook form out there. It is also, of course, in hardback where we got the uh, uh, the cool edition of having the Eruption short story, which we're covering in our next episode, included within the book. It's also from Insider number 141. It's got a brief preview of Crucible in it as well, though, of course, Crucible has now been out for quite a while. It does have that that bound-in preview of Dawn of the Jedi, Prisoner of Bogan number two, even though they call it number one. Uh, definitely a cool one to check out, uh, though I would still recommend, even though it takes until about the last 20, 30 pages or so, until the, the chapter entitled Descent, for it to start crossing over directly with the events of Force Storm. I think there are elements of the last few chapters that won't make a whole heck of a lot of sense until you read Force Storm. So I would read Force Storm first. Actually, Dawn of the Jedi Zero first, then Force Storm, maybe even Prisoner of Bogan because of the, the Despot War stuff that is revealed there, then read this. Read these essentially as they were released, not in chronological order, and I think you're going to get more out of some of the references within this novel. Yeah, absolutely. That's how I did it. Uh, and, and I would, like Nathan said, have that zero issue out. Keep it handy. I liked being able to flip to the moments, especially in the past moments where Lannery, she's looking at the cache. You know, she, they describe some of the different ones and stuff. You can bust that out and boom, there it is. All right there in the glory. Uh, I, I thought that was cool. There was uh, uh, some moments where they talked about the swords and things like that. I, I was getting a kick out of the swords. I kind of wished for a little more detail, though, because there were moments where, you know, Lannery was, like, reflecting them back. I want to know, you know, were they doing some force alchemy on the steel, stuff like that? That would have been cool to know. The Zero Issue kind of gives you a little of that information that you wouldn't have got in the book. So it works in that regard. I, I'm, I agree with Nathan. You know, read it in the way they came out. Don't go chronological in this case. Uh, I thought it was a very interesting story, an interesting setting especially the setting i think was the, the thing that drew the most interest for me i wanted to know more about the founding group that the jedi would later become uh did i get a lot of those answers no for each uh each question i had that was answered two more questions came up i guess i was dalian brock in this case but that was okay i mean i found myself relating to that character and enjoying that character and wanting to know more about the character i found the character was kind of tragic uh you know there were moments where at the end where you know i i was kind of like okay he does deserve what's coming but i did it at times through the story journey feel like he kind of got forced into the role uh so it, it was a fun character journey uh i liked how at the end of the book you know we we get some idea of the, the conflict that it's now thrown Lannery out of balance and, and you know, you have an idea of what that now looks like. Uh, I thought it was fun. A good fun ride. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't say it's a, a top 10. I would say it's definitely probably closer to a 6-7 in the range of, of what I would say a 1 through 10 rating would be. Um, you know, definitely no Ben Kenobi, but it's definitely better than a lot of books out there. Uh, it's a good fun ride. You don't need to be tied to much. You know, you don't have to read the other comics. You can grab it and read it and get a kick out of it. Again, that's the aspect of it where I feel like it's a reboot of everything you've known before. It's It's got the Star Wars feel, and yet it is totally new and fresh.
So that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. Thank you once again for hanging out with us as we ponder on sharing the fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online at the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on Zoom, Stitcher, or on iTunes, which we also encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook page at SWBeyondFilms, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in your search bar. No matter how you get there, though, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's the best way to interact with us, our home one. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. If you have any Star Wars and or EU questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode or our 100th episode coming up, you can email us directly at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. Now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention you our Audible trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash starwarsreport, you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars Expanded Universe or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate. Audible members, they can exchange any book within 12 months, no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. And of course, you can check out the Amazon.com store that my wife and I run. It's Amazon.com slash shops slash Lil Joe Collectibles, L-I-L-J-O Collectibles. Uh, you can find bits and pieces of things from my collection, her collection there, uh, that we have put up for sale. We also are still taking donations for those who might be interested in helping out with the whole uh, medical thing. I should hopefully be posting an update on that in the near future once I get over being sick. You can tell it from my voice and when she gets over being sick from what apparently I have given her. Uh, if you want to uh, to help out, the PayPal address is Nathan at StarWarsFanWars.com, but you can learn all about that within the posts on our uh, Facebook page here for the show. My thanks go out to all those who have helped so far. I think uh, it's put us in a better position to deal with things whenever they finally turn it over to a collection agency and they finally offer some type of settlement for that ridiculous uh, medical bill out there. So, once again, for Star Wars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nate, full of snot. Oh, snotty. Saying thanks for listening and may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that we'll ever actually get any type of background to these unanswered questions as we move towards Disney's uh, Rebels in Episode 7. Or the odds that these unanswered questions are going to drive fandom to cry out, We want more EU! Call it EU too if you must, but we want our EU back. Hey, you stay away from these guys. They're not the droids you're looking for. These aren't the droids we're looking for. That's right.